You're listening to the Irish Times. Hodger down. No recognised striker on the bench. Well, again, I think Will Leeds put it out. Oh, this is this is this is controversial. Click goes on. And the walls came tumbling down. That was footage from Leeds and Aston Villa yesterday, Pat, which to me now was one of the most hilarious things I've seen in a long time. And not, as has been put around, the ends of the earth just about saved by Marcelo Bielsa throwing in a little bit of fair, fair play and saving us all from the end of the world. <laughs> I suppose you're right that it is hilarious, actually. That's probably the way to look at it. I've found it infuriating, though. Explain explain what happened. OK, so uh, uh, in the championship yesterday, Leeds were playing Villa. A game dawdling to a kind of a workaday nil-nil draw, I kind of thought. Uh, but this was like 70 minutes in when an Aston Villa player... Uh, Jonathan Kujia uh, was fouled slash not fouled not got, fouled got a little bit um, uh, aggrieved uh, and went down in the centre circle uh, holding himself uh, to to save his own life uh, Leeds had the ball moved it uh, down the line uh, even though uh, Villa players had kind of stopped presuming that the ball would be kicked out of play uh, Mateus Klisch uh, the Leeds United player uh, was having no truck with any of this. Ran on, uh, curled, fine finish, mm. has to be said. Even you know, it's helped when the keeper doesn't do anything. But there you go, still a fine finish uh, to put Leeds one nil up. Uh, and all hell broke loose, as they say. Uh, it started with uh, Ireland's Conor Hurrahan, who went straight over. <laughs> and put uh, uh, attempted to put manners on uh, Klish um, presaging an, an, a one-in all-in schmozzle uh, uh, as Schmuzzle, we would call, yeah, call well it in GAA the highlight of which was of course uh, potential Ireland striker Patrick Bamford uh, going down uh, uh, having not been touched in the slightest going down writhing and holding his face which gave rise to an awful lot on my Twitter feed last night of uh, Irish people going, hope Mick McCarthy sees this now. We want none of that. <laughs> Carry on. Sullying our pristine Ireland squad the next time that there's a, a squad announcement. <laughs> but that's possibly by the by. Uh, leading to um, John Terry and Marcelo Bielsa giving it, choy oiking each other on the sideline. Uh, at which point the Aston Villa manager, whose name escapes me just for a second, Dean Smith, uh, telling uh, Bielsa essentially, oh, you know, you could just let us score. Uh, to which Bielsa went, yeah, all right, yeah, we're going to give you a goal. Uh, and giving right to the best part of it. Oh, totally, yeah. Which was uh, the Villa uh, team taking tip off, heading on, in on goal, and the Leeds players all kind of standing around going, yeah, all right, go and score your poxy goal. Except Pontus Janssen. The hero. <laughs> The Leeds United centre-back going, uh, no, uh, no, 
uh, enough of this shit. <laughs> I went over, uh, but you could see it was hilarious to watch a man's body language in which he was going, uh, I shall not stand for this. Shit, can I really not stand for this? Uh, I'm going to kick this guy. Can I really kick this guy? I'm going to have, uh, oh, uh, and sort of kicked him, sort of didn't kick him. Uh, kind of nearly took him down and then realized, well, it'd be kind of pointless me giving away a penalty here. <laughs> and uh, then essentially let him in and uh, scored the equaliser. And a rainbow came over the stand and everybody was happy and it was a great day for sportsmanship. Have I got that right, Pat? There's so much just wrong with all of it. <laughs> First of all, I would have loved if Janssen had managed to take the ball off your man's toe and boot it into the stand. Yeah. Aston Villa got a throw in. And Aston Villa had to attack with one Leeds defender and not even the Leeds goalkeeper trying. But Pontus Janssen just doing his best. Just fighting. Yeah. yeah <laughs> with Spartan. every fibre of his being. Yeah, exactly. He's like one of the Come 300 on. at Thermopylae. Yeah. Just, just, just him and his own taking on Aston Villa. I, I honestly do think that this, the reaction to this actually goes back 50 years. Yeah. That Don Reavy mm. poisoned the water so badly at Leeds that people look at Leeds and they think they're Dirty cheating. Leads. Yeah, Dirty Leeds. All the time. <laughs> And anybody who watched that game yesterday and God knows there's an awful lot of like 50-something Leeds fans in Ireland because of... 60-something. <coughs> is it really? Yeah. Fine. So. Uh, but like if you watched that game yesterday, Aston Villa took every opportunity to dive and roll around the ground and the Sky commentary immediately jumped on it saying, oh, they haven't kicked the ball out. Now, uh, Kajia was hurt. He did go off. Mm. Fine. But the referee did not stop the play because he wasn't fouled. Mm. He just went down and he was the umpteen player to go down. And he'd actually gone down himself earlier and jumped back up shortly afterwards. Mm. People were even making the point, oh, a Leeds player went down and Aston Villa put the ball out. Aston so Villa what? put the ball out because Aston Villa were trying to murder the game constantly. <laughs> and uh, and the, one of the worst parts about it uh, from any neutral's perspective is to see John Terry on John the sideline. Yeah. Acting as the arbiter of fair play. John Terry, banned for racism, let's not forget. John Terry, <laughs> sleeping with his teammates' wives, well, let's not forget. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. John Terry doesn't get to lecture anybody on fair as, play. As I saw Dion Fanning say yesterday, all is good to tune into the TV and see John Terry on the moral high ground. <laughs> <laughs> but regardless of John Terry, the, the point is that the rules are there that unless there's a head injury, the referee doesn't stop the game. Yeah. So Aston Villa ignored the thing that you tell eight-year-old kids, play to the whistle. Yeah. And they deliberately, they, they took their chances in watching your man. Your man ran all the way down the touchline and caught in. If they had put as much energy into stopping him at the time <laughs> as they did grabbing him and making a big fuss of things after he had scored, they would have stopped him. So I have a question for you. Go on. You are Marcelo Bielsa. Mm. Your team has scored that goal. Yeah. The world is going mad around you. Do you tell your players to let a goal be scored? Well, I think there's extenuating circumstances. <laughs> in this, Under 99% of the situation, uh, no, absolutely not. Mm. Well, do I let them score the goal? And you take it. But a win yesterday didn't actually matter from the point of view of Leeds. Like they, are still, they still weren't going to catch Sheffield United. Right. They're heading for the playoffs. Mm. There's a good chance that they meet Aston Villa in the playoff final. Mm. I say take... Let them do it. And, you know, you kind of hold a little bit of the moral high ground back from John Terry mm. and you have this uh, motivating factor in your locker for when you meet them at Wembley in a playoff final. If he uh, was able to make that determination while uh, the world was going mad around him, 
then he's uh, he's more of a genius than, than I even give him credit for. Because that's that's a lot of um, uh, four 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 dimensional chess to be playing. <laughs> it is, and I might be giving him too much credit. But either way, I, he eventually arrived at the decision that kind of makes sense. They definitely have a bit of emotional fuel for the next day. Oh well, yeah, and uh, and they already have a fair amount of emotional fuel for the next next day, which is they play Derby next. Oh yes, Spygate. <laughs> <laughs> so if nothing else, uh, the uh, Championship playoffs are going to get a bigger audience than than they usually get. I would imagine it's going to be pretty fascinating <laughs> stuff. But I definitely really want to see Bielsa in the Premier League. I think everybody does yeah. to a certain extent. Uh, well, from one outrage to another, we have uh, Ian Reardon on later on talking about uh, the uh, again, frankly, hilarious uh, row between. Sermo Farah and Heidi Gabriel Selassie's and of course uh, talking about yesterday's London Marathon and uh, Sinead Diver's fantastic run but we will start with rugby today and Pat you have and what everybody's waiting on the quarterfinal lineup for the Pro 14 Yeah or what they're calling semi-final qualifiers which is just ridiculous Are they calling it semi-final qualifiers yeah. or are the Irish Times deciding to call it that? Well, uh, Jerry, I'm blaming Jerry Thorne okay. on this He's uh, not here, so let's He's not that. here, so we can blame him. Uh, yeah, Saturday, Munster play Benetton uh, in Thoman Park at 3 o'clock. Ulster play Connacht in Kingspan at 5.35. And the winners of Munster Benetton will play Leinster in the RDS mm-hmm. the following weekend. And Glasgow uh, will await the winners of Ulster and Connacht. Gavin Comiskey is in to tell us all about how are you, Gav? Too bad. How's it going? I, it's going good. I, 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 you will have noticed, seeing as you filled in for me uh, here last week, that I wasn't here last week. But uh, I, I subsequently heard that that you basically took your opportunity to piss all over the Pro 14, and I will not have that on this, this is an podcast. Ambush. <laughs> it is an ambush. I will not yeah. have that. I also had a rant as well. When I was told them I would write the words Billy Vonapola ever again. But, uh, <laughs> the uh, my the let's put this in context. What I was actually saying was. Uh, when you get used to the kind of high octane Six Nations into sure. championship quarters, it's very hard to come all the way back down. And it was very hard this weekend because they didn't really mean much. Yeah. Like, it just sounds like rewriting yeah. history, doesn't it? It yeah, was a bit you, of a nasty. I love the gra- grassroots. I have never got more. Uh, hate mail is too strong, but I've never got a, a stronger reaction to anything I've written in the Irish Times ever to uh, than a column I wrote about the Pro 14 over Christmas a couple of years ago remember the Leinster Munster match over Christmas was it two years ago where there was none of the big guys playing none of the interna- almost none of the internationals and I had the temerity to suggest in a column that maybe they should flag this up in advance and maybe lower the prices for these games because you know uh, these are these are lower level I got games, a phone call from a provincial CEO because I wrote that one time <laughs> and uh, I put my box so, so you want to get real abuse so, right about schools rugby, yeah so I will not stand for any any pissing on the Pro 14 around here because you know I, I know I know what that looks like well I watched it on the weekend <laughs> because I was doing a column on it and um, the major thing was the warm up of the Munster game and to be to be more info from this from Conor Murray's um, uh, he got nudged or touched and what happened to him? Uh, it was the last uh, move of the breakdown. Uh, it was the last breakdown of the warm-up and he was really innocuously just went in to touch the, to pass the ball mm. and it was Billy Holland kind of bumped into Klein and I actually didn't see contact and I, I Zapruder filmed it back as many times as I could to see what happened. Held his head, then held his neck. Uh, medics came over 
and he looked upset. He kind of pulled his jumper over his face and was just pulled from the game. Mm. And they're going to give an update today. Um, worst case scenario, we, we, go, we go back into the whole uh, is he or is what's he wrong injured? with him? What's is going on? Yeah, whole situation, yeah, 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 or yeah. it's nothing, and it's just yeah. just they're just being cautious. But uh, it looked bad. It, it because it didn't look bad. It, it feels I bad. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um, look, that'll just unfold this week. Yeah. Um, if it was any other part of his body, though, we'd shrug it off. But when it seems to be his neck, you suddenly do get worried because, as you say, we're going back down that rabbit hole again. Yeah, I'm not sure if he got surgery. I'm not sure he was trying to manage it for the rest mm. of this year and all that. And again, the details uh, weren't actually delivered with clarity at the start, and which is his right, and we're, we don't need to go back down there. But um, it all comes back up again. Do you know the way I looked at it was if, I think it's September 8th is the cutoff for the World Cup, squads at the moment there would be no Joey Carberry Rory Best uh, Van der Flyer Dan Levy and Murray if you get there with losing five after what's coming if, with the games that are ahead and then the four matches in August not bad mm-hmm. you know like I think five frontline players won't make it you know I, and I think that's where you can you have, to, you have to consider that acceptable because look what's coming mm-hmm. you know what he, I mean yeah it, it I, I understand and that's a very adult uh, uh, way of thinking about it but it kind of depends on who the five are though doesn't it? Yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah, like Murray Ireland beat the All Blacks without Conor Murray mm. so um, John Cooney can't get near the team um, you know what I mean when Marmion and Luke McGrath are back in there and John Cooney has been besides that one little pen, uh, mi- uh, mi- kick of goal that didn't mm. go over in the Leinster match has been just superb this season and I think John Cooney against Kieran Marmion up in, Re- in Belfast should be pretty tasty on Saturday mm. Ulster Connacht both teams have had a successful seasons. their seasons are completed their campaign they're in the Champions Cup to the expense of the mess that is the Welsh rugby beneath the international circuit obviously um, now they can both shoot from the hip Ulster Connacht is a game that uh, all of a sudden these two teams can go right we've achieved our the basic goals and now we can go for we can really go for a trophy you know mm. so I don't think either will win the trophy I don't think either will get to the final same goes for Munster and Treviso. I think in two weeks' time, when Leinster come back around, um, if they can repeat what they did last year, they'll go and we'll see a Glasgow-Leinster final. Uh, yeah, in paradise. <laughs> in Celtic in Park. Celtic Park. Yeah, yeah. yeah which would be kind of... <laughs> That'd be great, yeah, crack. You know, it'll get us going into the Pro 14. <laughs> but in the meantime, uh, again, proof that Edinburgh and Wales teams are in... Bad, in a bad state Treviso's got there because of good organisation under Kieran Crowley and a bit of Conor O'Shea influence Well that was what I was going to ask uh, uh, th- to me they're the most interesting team there yeah. you know because that, that has been Completely. a revival of sorts now, now uh, is that partly taking advantage of the wreck uh, of others or, yeah. is it, or is it mostly they got their there, own no, work? In fairness they're there on merit but I watched a Munster complete second string team go over there and it was I like was writing the preview and I built it this is Treviso's biggest game ever they can they're they're in line to, they're going to nail down their playoff spot here if they can beat Munster at home a second string Munster at home and they couldn't right. like they're their best team they couldn't live with Munster seconds mm-hmm. I, I, I tuned up Munster seconds just were better than them so Munster firsts in Limerick good luck and good luck like yeah. they're, they're, I just, I can't, this is this is everything to Munster now they have to really if they show any kind of progress they have to win this or at least get to a, a Pro 14 final so I think they'll wipe the floor with Treviso um, and Ulster Connacht it's tough to call but you'd imagine Ulster can sort it out at home but Andy France done a really really interesting job there's probably worked more of a bit of a, a dig into what he's done um, he, he he hasn't even got all the 
he probably needs way more resources still for them to be for them to have any kind of level of competitiveness in next year's Champions Cup. And then we move into the serious stuff of Europe the week after with the Pro 14 either Sorry, side. I said the week after, by the way. It's two weeks after to the semi-finals. It's, um, it's the yeah, there's a little there's a le- small game between Leinster and Saracens and Newcastle in between. That'll be rather important. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> will, will you you pay that one attention then, Cap? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm sh- everything, like, it's worthwhile tuning into everything from now on because it's knockout, you know? It does get very interesting. And th- th- we're talking about Munster. Munster come to the RDS... Uh, on Saturday, the May May eighteenth, similar to last season, um, probably okay on the presumption that they're going to take care of Treviso, and um, that game is very interesting, you know. But um, like I still see, uh, I still see only w- uh, it going one way, just on simply on form and mm. the, the strength of Leinster squads. Talk to us a bit more about Connacht. Is is this been not been a superb season for them really? When you look at uh, even say Jack Carty's kind of breakthrough. They have ten players that played, um, for, are, are, that are going to be involved in Schmidt's extended panel. They have five that played during the Six Nations, I think, was it? Mm. Like in international terms, it shows that they, they, the jumps they've taken forward, and they can legitimately go uh, and take on Ulster and, and look to beat them. I tell you, when Connacht are legitimately going to go and start winning things, look. They- we know that you, have to, can't, you can't write them off because what they did a couple of years ago in the Portal was wonderful under Pat Lamb and Andy Friend definitely has that coaching thing going on. But when the likes of Jack McGrath and Joey Carberry decide to start going west when they leave Leinster, when those, those players start, decide to go play their rugby and goalie, that's when you know everyone's taking them seriously. In the meantime, they just keep doing their thing and uh, they really seem to have found a, a really special guy in Andy Friend who, like, yeah, I, I just, I've said this before, I loved the way he just cycled around Connemara and kind of mm. ingrates himself into, because, so what is Connacht all about, you know, so he starts to understand it, you know. Um, they actually had this, this brilliant winger then in the Canterbury Crusaders at the moment, Sevi Recchi, uh, who, uh, O'Gara's coaching, uh, who was supposed to come up, but there was, um, as O'Gara described it, as it turned out to be just a misdemeanour in court, some an incident um, where Connacht ripped up their contract at a time when Irish Rugby didn't want to be getting involved in that. And, uh, the man, they, they're missing out on what looks like one of the top wingers in the world. He's absolutely tearing it up in Super Rugby. And so that was supposed to be their marquee signing. So for them to, to be so progressive, so young Connor Dean got his debut for them. Uh, a good, fam, good uh, famous uh, out-half name in Irish Rugby. Uh, he got his, uh, so they still have to deal with what's, what they're given, you know what I mean, and what they build from themselves. They played seven academy players this season. Um and they, I think they're, like Leinster are pushing 60 players, Connacht are pushing 50. Um, wow. This is what it takes to be in any way competitive. Uh, this is American football uh, mm. uh, numbers that we've entered into in rugby. And that's how three I'm, for each position. Yeah, that's, oh, without three for each position, you can just, you're not at the races. Mm. Uh, and that's why uh, the second best player in Leinster does not stay at Leinster long anymore. He is just sent to become the best player in the other three provinces. And tell me, is the, when you say that, so we take Jack McGrath, who's going to Ulster, of course. Is there a big, would there be a big difference in what he would possibly get paid at Ulster compared to what he'd get paid at Connacht if he made that move? Or is it purely uh, th- that that Ulster would be seen higher up the pecking order? I'm, I'm open to correction here, but I'm pretty sure Jack McGrath's on a national contract. Mm. So he just gets his, what, he, right. what his agent negotiates with the IRFU. So that's what I mean. So, that, so then it's down to where he's kind of looking around going, right, who has the bigger potential as a club? Who can take the better, better yeah. steps forward? Yeah, and Jack McGrath, and it, there's a kind of an interesting little kind of a purgatory that Jack McGrath is suffering mm. now. Jack McGrath, as it stands, would probably miss out on the World Cup squad. 
he played himself and Nick McCarthy, who's going to Munster mm-hmm. to play to be their second fiddle to Conor Murray next season. Um, these two guys both played on the weekend, and that's probably injuries. That's, so that's probably the last you see them in a blue jersey. It was which, interesting. We did, uh, or I did, I did that thing with. Um, Brian O'Driscoll and, and Heaslip before the uh, before the start of the Six podcast Nations, of the year. I heard, yeah. Podcast of the year, indeed. Um, there was a Q and A at the end of it that we didn't broadcast just because the you know. Do Declan, we have it on tape? Declan likes a short podcast. He doesn't doesn't like us going overboard. But a question came up from the crowd, which hadn't struck me in the slightest at that stage. Uh, I'm not sure. Not sure it was absolutely certain that McGrath was going, but it, it had been mooted. And a question came up from the crowd asking the two lads. You know, should Lancer just decide not to play him now for the rest of the season? Like, you know, he's he's making his choice to go to Ulster. So, and I kind of thought it was a ludicrous question. That was it showed my ignorance because the two guys really hummed and had and and gave it real thoughtful answers and weren't entirely sure where they would come down. So they like they're Leinster players as well, and they're Leinster players from yeah. the previous generation. So they're still quite annoyed when this happens but I think the theory inside the camp in Leinster now the way they've looked at it is okay okay let's turn this in flip this really Jordy Murphy Jack McGrath Joey Carberry let's flip losing these very valuable players mm-hmm. to us into a positive where they go okay it's now an opportunity for Ed Byrne to challenge Jack McGrath for the Ireland sub jersey right. because we're going to use him now okay it's the chance now for Ross Byrne to rise up and like for example Nick McCarthy can't get Hugh O'Sullivan keeps getting picked at him for the European games Ed Byrne has usurped Jack McGrath as Keane Healy's understudy in Leinster which means Dave Kilcoyne the Munster starter has usurped Jack McGrath in the Ireland bench and like a lion he's pretty much suffered since the 2017 Lions tour one of he will if Jack McGrath retired tomorrow he'd be seen as one of the great Ireland props ever and he is probably not going to the World Cup I I hope uh, some kind of a sense prevails. Then again, if Dave, Dave Kilcoyne earns his spot, fair sure. play. But he's not. I just Jack McGrath's a better player. You know, mm. Jack McGrath removed Keane Healy for a time there from the position. So it's a little kind of a little air, little grey area that. Yeah, uh, it's the wheels within wheels. Because and you I have find to make a decision yeah. in November now because the French teams make a decision. The IRFU have got their, their act together on this. They get their contracts nailed down so there's no threat of losing people because the English and the French do their business, so they have to do their business at the same time. This is how Sexton was lost mm. to Irish rugby, because the IRFU, before New Sephora, refused to do their business with him until... Uh, he, they basically waited until the French had signed all the right halves, French clubs, and he went... He took a stand mm. that uh, kind of ruined Leinster for two years and damaged Ireland for two years, and everyone's kind of learned from that. Mm. But it, the flip side of it is, people like Jack McGrath, Nick McCarthy, and all these guys... The Leinster coaching ticket kind of more or less shuts them down after they decide to, that they're leaving, you know, because they want to promote the next guy in. Uh, so let's get back to the quarterfinals. You think it's fairly straightforward? Munster will beat Benetton. We'd call the other one then. Um, I, I think I'm going to base it on that wonderful performance by Ulster in the Aviva mm-hmm. when they really rattle Leinster. If they can get everything back up to that standard again, they've got. I think they've got most of their players primed up. Um, if they do that. They're a better team, you know. They've proven it that they're a better team. They got they got better weapons. Um, there's talk of Rory Best making this miraculous recovery from his ankle injury. If there's any way he can strap that up, he's getting on that pitch because yeah. it's his last time on that pitch yeah. for uh, for this team. So he wants to play one more time in Belfast for Ulster. Um, so don't be surprised if uh, that ankle <laughs> is okay. <laughs> and uh, Jacob Stockdale has a hamstring injury. Um, 
Again, Irish perspective. Let's just put him in a refrigerator, yeah. and we'll yeah. see. We'll see you for the uh, for like twenty minutes in August, yeah. <laughs> and get yourself ready for when you, you land in Yokohama. He's the star, but uh, Ulster need him on the pitch if they're going to win anything. Uh, thank you, Gavin. We will have you back for that uh, little game the Saturday after next, uh, or the weekend after next, um, next Monday. So, thank you very much for that, and take it easy. A mad kind of week, week, weekend in uh, distance running of all things, Pat. Very bizarre, yeah, very bizarre run into the well, London Marathon. Exactly, yeah. It, it, it takes a lot sometimes for for uh, something like that to bubble through to the general consciousness. And uh, uh, if you're going to have it, you're going to have Mo Farah and Haile Gabriel Selassie at each other's throats, which, you know. Go straight to the top. That'll grab people's attention. Uh, we're going to have Ian O'Reardon is on the line. He's going to tell us all about it in a little bit. But first of all, Ian, uh, the London Marathon itself, uh, a couple of incredible stories out of it. Uh, we'll get on to uh, uh, Kipchoge in a minute. But um, Sinead Diver, wow. I mean, that, that was that was amazing to watch. Yeah, as you say, Maliki, it's funny how the marathon can sometimes, you know, we really bring in a lot of, lot of broad interest. And I, I, was, I was quite surprised even myself at the reaction that, that Sinead Diver got, um, given given the fact that, uh, okay, she only finished seventh, but, I mean, an absolutely brilliant run. And I suppose you have to take a step back and say, why why, why, why are people reacting to it the way she did? And I was chatting to Sinead during the week, mm. and she's very conscious of, uh, of not playing her age up or down too much, whatever the way you want to put it. But, yeah, she's 42 years old, um, mother of two sons. And I think at this stage, maybe I'd like to think of you know, her, her story's been told before. We've, we've covered it a few times. Mm. But born and raised in Belmullis, went to school and went to college in Limerick. And then about 2002, she moved to Australia with her husband uh, to work in IT and settled down there. And then I think like, like a lot of women at that age, only got into running after giving birth to her first child. And it just, it just absolutely took off from there. Um, it's been improving steadily. She won, the, she won the, the, the Melbourne Marathon last October in 225 odd and then she comes out yesterday and she's one of the, she was one of the few women to actually go with the, with the pacemaker she was leading effectively leading the race for the first half um, she was passed by the by the Africans that wasn't too surprising but but held on brilliantly to finish in um, what was it 224 11 mm. which, which is uh, another minute off her personal best second fastest Irish woman third fastest Australian and, and I say that in, in the best in the best possible terms because she, she, she she's happy to admit that she's running for our, run, an Irish woman representing Australia she's dual nationality obviously um, the, I suppose the only disappointing thing is she was eligible to run for Ireland but through a kind of a, a sort of a, a fault in the selection system at the time she wasn't selected for the 2015 World Championships in Beijing so she opted for Australia at, at, at the time which kind of thinking which is the right thing to do and then now she's clearly you know running for Australia under the Australian flag but I mean, she's, as she says herself, there's no negativity about that. That's just the no, reality. It's of it. funny. It's funny. Even you mentioned that uh, in it, like even I, I caught a bit of it yesterday. The bit where where, where she w- was leading, and she she, she saw, I saw her interviewed afterwards, and she was kind of going, "Yeah, there was parts where I was just I was I, I was fighting the instinct to look over my shoulder because I really didn't know where anybody was. I was going, uh, come on, where where is everybody? How far am I ahead here?' But even just watching that, I. I, I was kind of thinking it it it's nearly a failure of imagination to frame this in in terms of is she Irish is she Australian 
she's just it's just an amazing story exactly and that's the point that's, that's the point I, I, I was trying to make and I think it's a point Sinead would make herself you know and all her family were over from Belmullet and Mayo her mum and dad and I think she's three sisters and, and her brother and uh, by coincidence I was talking to a friend of mine last night who, who knew her back in when she was in college in Limerick I think she did PE in Limerick and you're talking what 20 odd years ago now and she remembered her and said oh yeah and she was she was always super competitive in basketball and you know so she was she was one of these really competitive sort of sporting talents but just never found her way into a, a sport where she could I, I, I suppose could excel, but but looking at the reaction, I mean, I think I think it, it really does show that the sport can still inspire in so many ways. And you give her, you know, she ticks so many boxes. A mother, she still works, she trains part time essentially, um, and you know, and she, she's only really kind of discovered her potential now at age forty two, and that's that, that's a great story. And you have to remember as well that. You know, she's in a sport where, you know, marathon running, like the, the commitment and dedication is enormous. I mean, this is not like something you can sort of do three or four days a week and then go home and put the legs up. Like, she's out there twice a day running over 120, 130 miles a week sometimes. And um, there's a bit of link with Sonia O'Sullivan as well, as in Sonia O'Sullivan obviously lives a, spent a lot of time in Melbourne and her husband, Nick Badeau, who runs the Melbourne Track Club, she's now working with them. And that's a kind of a, that's a kind of the, one of the main reasons why she's made to step up. So she's training with a very elite group but uh and you know top 10 yes they also qualified her for tokyo so she'd be going to tokyo next year the tokyo olympics will be should be 43 and i mean i think she's she's definitely in, in position now to really compete uh, at that level in the olympics which is um which is brilliant for her brilliant for the sport and but definitely with a little bit of a tinge of of regret that she's not she's not wearing that green vest of ireland in in the men's competition uh kenya's iliad kipchoge ran the second fastest marathon in history uh, it's his fourth time winning uh, winning the London Marathon. He's just one of the greats. He, is he the greatest marathon runner of all time? Yeah, look, I'm one of these people. I, I, sat, I sat down and watched the London Marathon yesterday, every stride of it. You know, I think, I think it's, it's, it's a phenomenal race to watch unfold. And even, even the way the elite men just sort of, they're all bundled together for the first half. And Kipchoge just bided his time. He waited, he waited. And then I think the last, second last mile, he dropped a, a 4.30 mile and, yeah, and he wins in two oh two odd, which is the you know the second fastest of all time, as you say. Um, I think that's his twelfth win out of thirteen marathons. Um, I mean, it's it's an, it's incredible consistency. The one thing I'll say about Kipchoge is when I first saw this guy run at the two thousand and three World Championships in Paris, so this is what sixteen years ago now. He won the five thousand meters. He beat Hisham El Garouge, and we were all thinking this guy is this guy's incredible. This guy's the future of the sport, and and he's proven that over the last. 15, 16 years, he's been incredibly consistent, he's been incredibly progressive and yeah, I mean there's no reason to doubt his times but I mean I was writing a piece in Saturday's paper about the fact that look, I mean there's still a huge issue with doping down in Kenya mm-hmm. um, the world half marathon record Abraham Kipton was all set to run London but he was suspended for doping literally 48 hours ahead of the race and you kind of wonder well if he was there, what would he would do we all know the testing in Ethiopia is, is, is random at best um, so you're kind of, as I say, you're kind of Balancing the fact that, yeah, I mean, Kipchoge is a phenomenal athlete. I've no reason personally to doubt him. But if you, if you kind of look at what lies beneath or what's really going on in the sport and all these guys are running times off the charts, men and women, and it only seems to be the Ethiopians and Kenyans. And I mean, you look at the British guy, Caleb Hawkins, who really good runner. He's been like he's training at altitude. He's doing all the same things. He's wearing the same shoes as the Kenyans. And he finishes a mile down the road, you know, literally 208, which is still a brilliant run, but he's not even getting, getting, getting a look in. And you're looking at that 202 and you kind of wonder, do they even have an off day anymore? <laughs> so, it's, mm. look, it's, it's, it's fantastic for, for to see the mar- men's marathon running progressing the way it is. But as I say, you can't be naive enough to not at least ask the question, I mean, is there, is there something else going on with Kenyan distance running that we can be absolutely sure 
is is believable, and um, I, and that, that's the one question which I would certainly be um, posing as a backdrop. To and it is it is the thing that um, it is it is the thing that stops the Elliot Kipchoge's of the world being world world renowned. You know, outside of athletic circles, who could pick him out of a lineup? You know, it's, it's funny the, the the great Twitter account Sporting Intel, Nick Harris of the Mail, uh, had a great line yesterday. He said, "If if you want to re- recreate Eliud Kipchoge's London Marathon win at your gym tomorrow, get on the treadmill, set the speed to twenty point six four four kpm, run for two hours and two minutes and thirty eight seconds at twenty kilometers an hour, like that." So, so. Well, the average person would last a minute. I mean, he's he's, he's running sixty nine <laughs> seconds per four hundred meters. He's doing four, you know, four thirty yeah. odd miles. I mean, it's it's. It, but look, that's. I mean, he's been doing that since he was, you know, since he was sixteen, seventeen. So it's not, you know, the times aren't 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 that ridiculous. And if you if you put if you put and yet Ian two, and yet Ian, they are the the idea that that he, that a human can do that is it stretches credulity, as you say. Well, I, I, I wouldn't. I'm not, I'm not. That's not what I'm suggesting. I don't think it's impossible. I don't think it's impossible. Okay, and as I say, I mean, you know, John Tracy ran a 209 in Boston, you know, 30 years ago. I mean, if John Tracy was training now with the, with, the, with the shoes and with the same amount of training, uh, sort of a science, let's say, there's no reason why John Tracy couldn't run a, 20, a 204, 205. So, like, I think I think the marathon running is a natural progression. And look, look at any sport. Look at any mm. sport. The way. The science is influenced on. I mean, take your take your take your Premiership footballer now compared to thirty years ago, and don't sure. tell me they're not, you know, at least ten twenty percent more, you know, athletic in their in, in their physicality than they were twenty thirty years ago. So I, I'm not. I think we I think we could all we could all see a little bit more testing in the Premier League football yeah, as well. Yeah, you know, in fairness, this, this, this goes across <laughs> yeah. all sports. I mean, yeah. look at rugby players. I mean, look at look look at the look how the game of rugby has changed. Um, and I don't think it's impossible. I'm not suggesting for one second that there's anything. You know that all rugby players have, have somehow done something illegal because this this is natural progression of sport. But my only point about the whole Kenyan thing is there seems to be a level of of a sort of a consistency about the way they're running. And then we, we saw we saw as well Kiprop, the uh, Olympic champion, done for doping. Uh, you know, a couple of years ago, and he was given a four year ban. The reigning Olympic champion when women's given a double ban because she tried to make up some story about how some doctor injected her EPO. And I I just unfortunately this is this is the backdrop. But look mm. to go back to your question about Kipchoge. I mean, his time is—it's it's, not—it's not impossible, and it's not—it's not incredulous for one second. But it's certainly—it's just—it's the backdrop that I—that I'd be worried about, and the fact that um, um, you know there are there's a, there's a level of sort of consistency which is only really being produced by Kenya and Ethiopia, and not not by other countries. So that brings us somewhat neatly onto uh, the spat. Well, it's more than a spat between Sermo Farah, as he likes to call himself, and. Uh, uh, long distance running legend Haile Gabriel Selassie explain the background to all of this and how it blew up last weekend yeah and it's not entirely unrelated unfortunately because mm. if you look at you know, the fact that Mo Farah um, I mean I remember when I was down in Kenya I actually went to Kenya 2012 to train for the London Marathon and he was actually down there training in the same training camp I didn't see him he was kind of locked away in his room doing his own thing which is fine but Mo Farah's been going to Kenya and Ethiopia for years this is one of the reasons why he claims he's suddenly gone from world contender to world champion in a range of events, and um, but he was training down in Ethiopia as he normally does in the in the, in the, in the highlands somewhere outside Addis Ababa, which is actually owned by Haile Gabriel Selassie. Um, they had a bit of a run in. They had some sort of they had some sort of incident down there whereby Mo Farah claimed that he had some money stolen, he had a watch stolen, and he left the hotel without paying. Whereas Haile Selassie was saying, actually, you know, there was an issue here where there was a fight in the gym, and he was trying to bring in this guy Jama Aden, who's a mm. 
uh, a Somalian coach who was who was caught, well, allegedly caught with, with performance enhancing substances. So this 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 kind of went back and forth. But it was actually Mo Farr who brought this up in in, in Wednesday, Thursday before London. And it, a yeah, lot of I wasn't I wasn't completely clear on that until I read back over it on the weekend. Because well, I was off yesterday or last week and didn't really this only kind of bubbled up. But I I had no idea that 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 Farah had sort of brought this up unbidden in the in the build up. Yeah, and right at right at the tail end of a press conference, and it was it was completely un, unprompted and sort of on. <laughs> it was it came out of nowhere, and you, you kind of think of God, you, you know, like yourself, Malik. I've been to enough press conferences over the years where mm. players or coaches or managers say absolutely nothing, and suddenly this guy just dropped this, this bomb. Um, but he clearly wanted to, he clearly wanted to get it off his chest for some reason, and maybe it was a case of getting in first before something else came out, but. I don't think we've heard the last of this. They can't be both telling the truth. Somebody's got to be. Somebody's got to be fabricating the story. Either Mo Farah left the hotel without paying because he wanted to make a quick getaway, or 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 Harley Gabriel actually is making up the fact that he, he was trying to he was trying to get this band coach in, into the hotel to work with him. Um, so it's it, either way, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look good. But it goes back to my my my, my point about that part of the world and this has nothing to do with being with being singling out Kenyan Ethiopia. This this is the fact, this is the reality. There's hundred and thirty eight Kenyans that failed doping tests since uh, two thousand and four. A lot of those are, are champions, are are famous runners. The testing in Ethiopia we know is I was looking at their one of their recent reports from twenty sixteen and there was there was only testing between April and I think August and the rest of the year there was no testing at all down there. And only, only last week we were saying we were talking about the Irish anti-doping report and, you know, oh God, well, they're not catching anybody. But at least the testing is comprehensive and there's a huge deterrent and they're going out there and they're testing 24-7 essentially. But when you look at the flip side of that in Ethiopia and there's very little testing going on down there and then you put, you wonder why Mo Farah goes down there for six, 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 eight, you know, six, seven, eight weeks at a time. Again, this is not suggesting for one second he's, He's 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 doping, but you cannot kind of ignore that either, and kind of wonder a little bit about why, what's his motivations for going down there. Ian, after that press conference um, last Wednesday, uh, Mo Farah showed the press a text message that he'd sent to Heidi Gabriel Selassie, and I'm just going to read it out because it kind of set the tenure or the tenor for the their exchanges for the week. He sent so he the text message read. I want to inform you that I'm disappointed you have not made any effort to find my stolen money and especially my watch. I've tried to contact you by telephone several times. Know that I am not responsible for what I say during the press conference in London and what influence it will have on your personality and your business. Greetings, Sir Mo. Yeah. Like, yeah. You'd, I, you, it's just bizarre that he released that uh, to the press. And first of all that he signs off text messages calling himself Sir Mo but you'd really wonder who is it advising him at the moment like his his whoever is running his PR campaign or PR relations is it's just been a disaster lately well I know his manager is Ricky Sims and a Donegal man so I think I'd like to think Ricky had a bit more sense and I know for a fact they were they were, they were very surprised by that um, his coach is now Gary Locke Paula Radcliffe's husband and he was equally surprised and he did he actually showed that text to members of the media who were over there and like that line, I'm not responsible for what I'm saying. As if, as if it, it, that that reads to me as if there's some sort of blackmail involved mm. here. It really does. You know, you couldn't, you wouldn't, have, you couldn't have scripted that any any worse if you were trying to be transparent about it, or, or what you know, if you're trying to be be factual about it. This is not my my. I can't. You know, it's almost like I'm being I'm being bribed to say this, which which again makes you wonder. Um, he was asked about it after after yesterday's race, and I think it definitely impacted on his race. I mean, Mo Farah was out the back door after halfway. I mean, he still ran two oh five, by the way, which is which is serious running for the marathon. But I mean, there's no doubt if you 
if you're trying to if you're trying to promote the sport right now and say, look, I mean, men's marathon running is going through a golden era, and maybe that's what it is. Maybe it is just the fact that this is, you know, when Kipchoge goes off the scene, they'll all drop back and start running 204s, 205s again, and this guy is a freak of nature. But I was reading as well somewhere this morning that one of the Ethiopians was saying that he forgot to have his breakfast, and you're kind of going, well, this is, this is a bit bizarre. Um, but I mean, I would. I mean, we're kind of getting a bit negative here. But I go back to Sinead Diver's story here, and I think, I mean. You look at her story, and there's absolutely no reason to, for one to question her performance for one second. I mean, she's, you know, she's training essentially on her own in, in Melbourne. I mean, if she was gone off to Kenya and Ethiopia, you might be asking the same questions. But, mm. but the reality of it is that there's, there's a part of the sport where I don't think the anti-doping is being enforced as long as it should. And until, until, that, until it's proven to be, or at least they, they up the ante a little bit, um, I, I think the questions have to be asked about where, where men's and women's marathon running as well. Don't forget the women's winner. The women's um, winner yesterday ran the second half of the race in 66 minutes, which is the, the fastest second half of a marathon in, in women's history. I mean, most women in the world that I know would never run a 66-minute half marathon. She ran this in the second half of a marathon. These, these are the kind of things you're going to go, wow. I mean, is, is this, there's, a, there's a kind of a consistency about these performances, which, is, which doesn't necessarily add up. Mm. Well, uh, I'm sure we will have you on again uh, at some other uh, juncture to talk about athletics. But sadly, Ian, for you, uh, for for the next uh, couple of months, you'll be in here talking about GEA. So uh, <laughs> uh, I thank you in advance for well, all of well, that. By the way, there's very good uh, anti-doping testing, which we all know. <laughs> Indeed, so yeah. we, can, we, can, we can believe in everything we see in the GEA field. <laughs> thank you in advance for all of that. Uh, thank you for this uh, today. Thank you to Gav, who was in earlier talking rugby. And thank you to you, Pat. Thanks, Bob. Thank you to Declan behind the desk. And we will see everyone next week. Cheers, folks.